Thank you so much, choir and orchestra and worship leaders. We're so grateful for you. Take your Bibles, church. Let's turn to the book of Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, as we continue this uh, series called In the Den, How to Live a Life of Faith in the Lion's Den. And chapter 3 is very famous. You are familiar with the story, most likely. If you grew up in church or have been around much, you've heard about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their adventure, their adventure through the furnace and how they survived the furnace because of their faith in God. God preserved them. Uh, They took a stand against their government, their king, Nebuchadnezzar. He commanded them to bow and conform their worship, conform their beliefs to the central beliefs of Babylon. And he wanted to control uh, a nation with many, many different faiths. He would go around as the, the king of Babylon and he would conquer all of these countries and he would pull into his society this great pluralism and, and all of these different faiths. It's much like our world today, much like even our nation today with all the different kinds of faiths and different kinds of gods that are worshipped. And he decides that he wants to conform everybody to a government-instituted uh, faith. They would not bow, and they chose to burn. And so they are a great example of faith to us today. And there are some principles I want to give you as we walk through this text uh, on what to expect as believers in a modern-day Babylon. And then some applications, what to do as believers in a modern-day Babylon. Y'all glad to be here this morning? Wasn't that a great song? It is well. It is well with our soul. And we're going to see... Uh, why it's well, because God is faithful to his people. Let's pray together. Father, I ask as I work through this text today, as we walk through this story, we would see the ultimate hero is you. It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The ultimate hero is never us when we make a stand or do something right. The ultimate hero in it all is our Lord Jesus. I pray that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified, Father, for the great king, the great Uh, creator that you are. You bent Nebuchadnezzar to your will. You still have the king's heart in your hands today. We pray that we would just be faithful and trust you in every fire and every furnace. And we ask for this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The movie Hacksaw Ridge has made headlines over the last couple of months or so. Some of you may have seen it. It's a very uh, difficult movie to watch because it's, it's intense war, intense action. I'm certainly not recommending it uh, on that basis. But uh, it has made headlines for two reasons. Next week, it's, it's up for six Academy Awards uh, because of its excellence. Best director, best movie, best actor, and several others. It's, it's got all the marks of excellence And Mel Gibson is the director. Mel uh, created The Passion of the Christ. And with all of his controversial personal issues, the guy's made some amazing movies. And he's being celebrated for Hacksaw Ridge. But uh, the quality of the movie is not what really caught my attention. Uh, the, The second reason is the story. The story is a story of faith under fire. Not just a soldier under fire, but faith under fire. In 1943, Desmond Doss, a little country guy, Seventh-day Adventist from Lynchburg, Virginia, 
decided he needed to serve his country in the war like many of his friends. But there was only one problem. Because of his Christian faith, his particular beliefs, and part of his personal commitment, uh, he was a conscientious objector. He would not touch a gun, much less shoot someone with it. You can imagine that if you enroll in the Marines or the Army, that might be a problem. And the movie details the real-life persecution he faced from fellow soldiers in boot camp and from commanding officers who wanted him out of the army. In several scenes, when commanded to bow to their commands, to take up arms, to practice shooting the weapons, he stood firm with his convictions and he faced some persecution. He believed that he could do just as much for the military as a medic as he could with a weapon. Well, that he did. This is a true story. In 1945, at the Battle of Okinawa, he single-handedly pulled to safety as a medic 75 to 100 wounded and dying soldiers by himself, all the while under fire, dodging the bullets of the Japanese that held position of Hacksaw Ridge. Every time he would pull one out, uh, he, he tells this story. If you watch a little biography on him, he tells a story. He kept hearing the Lord, and he kept saying, just one more. Just help me get one more. And as the night went, he rescued all of these soldiers without touching a gun. As a result of standing for his faith, this interesting picture that I have in front of you is interesting for this reason. Truman is giving him the Congressional Medal of Honor. But this is the first time in history... It may be the last time in history, I don't know if it's happened since, that a conscientious objector received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Isn't that interesting? That's a story of faith under fire. Faith that stood its ground and received a reward. Well, chapter 3 is the same exact story set uh, thousands of years in the past, uh, 2,500 years in the past, as these three Hebrew uh, uh, prefects. They were leaders in the kingdom of Babylon. They were members of Congress. I'll just I like to put it in that mind. And Nebuchadnezzar calls the Congress together. Congress is in session. They bring all the prefects and satraps and all these things we've never heard of. And so I just put, put it in your mind. All of the leaders of the various provinces and political leaders, all the representatives, he calls them to town and he says, I've built this golden image. And I am going to command all the peoples and all the nations, all the folks that you represent, including you, I want you to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the group, and they're thinking this is a problem. And so we join this story in verse 1 as Nebuchadnezzar um, turns up the heat. This is about 20 years after the last encounter that Nebuchadnezzar really had with God. If you remember in chapter 2 from last week, I know it was seven days ago, but last week we talked about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and he could not interpret the dream. He's he losing sleep. Daniel uh, rescued not only himself and his three friends, he rescued all of the wise men, all the conjurers, the magicians, all his folks who pretended to be dream interpreters. He rescued the Chaldeans. Remember that group? He rescued all of those folks that served Nebuchadnezzar because he arose, took the heat, interpreted the dream, and then at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar lights incense to Daniel, uh, kind of pays homage to Daniel. He doesn't quite get God yet, but he shows some respect, reasonable respect. But here's what's happened. In the last 20 years since, that was probably around 604 B.C., well, since then, in the, he, he came and he um, attacked Jerusalem again. 
and deported the rest of the folks. He just left sort of the, just the dregs of society there. But he went in again and completely destroyed the temple. All, all of the acts of worship towards the gods, the God Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in the, it's hard for us to think this, but uh, back in the day, if you went in and were able to destroy a temple of another God, that meant your God was boss. Your God was the best. So he had had this legitimate uh, respect for Yahweh because of what Daniel had done, but then he went in and destroyed the temple of Yahweh and the city of Yahweh. He, he, he just ran right all over them. And so he, he lost respect because his religion, his idea was it's all based on power and dominance. And so he came back and he said, you know, I remember that dream that Daniel told me about with the head of gold and the, the arms and chest of silver and the legs of bronze. Y'all remember that from last week? And, the, and I remember that. And Daniel told me that I was the head of gold and that Babylon was the head of gold. You know, we are the best. And evidently, God wasn't completely right because we just overran his temple. Maybe he's got that image wrong. Maybe there aren't any coming kingdoms behind. Who's going to beat me? I just wiped out all the other gods. Who's going to beat me? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change that dream. I'm just going to file that. And I'm going to make up my own truth. I'm going to take the word of God that I got from Daniel. I'm going to compromise it to fit my own desires. I'm going to make a statue. Maybe like the one I saw in my dream. But this time, I'm going to make it completely out of what? Gold. You see what he's saying? I'm rejecting the word of God. I'm rejecting the prophecy that I was given. I'm rejecting the fact that I'm ever going to die, that this empire will ever fall. I'm going to make an image, and it's completely gold, not just the head, the whole deal. And I'm going to command everyone to come and worship. Look at verse 1. So he made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. You may have that translated in yours to 90 feet and all those, but what's interesting about the 60 cubits and six cubits is that the number six always kind of clues us in that this is man's best effort at being man. And it is always shy of God. The number for God is seven. And so you see these number sixes thrown around. You'll see it in the book of Revelation. You've heard of the number 666. Well, here's just another reflection. Here's man's best effort to say, worship me. This is humanism at its best. This is man putting himself on the throne just in blatant rejection of God's word. So in verse 2, he sends for his congress. He calls in the satraps, prefects, governors, and they all come in. And they stood before the image in verse 3 that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now in verse 4, this is what's interesting. He sends the herald out. Here comes Harold. You say, who's Harold? No, Harold is someone who proclaims something. So he comes out and he heralds. He says, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. So this is a pluralistic society. Lots of nations, lots of people, lots of languages. He, in essence, is a dictator over lots of the world. And all of these ideas are together. And he says, I think I'm going to figure out a way. I'm going to make a way that all of these various people groups, over there, you got some Baptists. <laughs> over, there, you got some Baptists. <laughs> over there, you got some Catholics. 
Over there, you got some Muslims. Over there, you got some Jews. Over there, you got some Chaldeans and you got some Hindus and you got all these folks. He had conquered lots of the world. He says, I, all, they can worship their own gods. But here's the problem. They start claiming and trying to obey the commandments of their particular gods. And that's where we get in trouble. I'm okay for those Christians over there to worship Jesus, but the problem is, is if Jesus tells them to do something and I don't like it, they're going to do it. I need people to be able to worship who they want to worship, but not let it affect their daily life. Does this sound strangely familiar? This is exactly what the purpose is. It wasn't just for Nebuchadnezzar to have a statue. They, they don't know if it was of him or not. Uh, it obviously wasn't all 90 foot of gold. It was on a large pedestal, they believe, and at the top was this golden image. I just picture an Oscar. You know, I already brought that up. You know, just, a, just an Oscar up there, right? But the purpose of it is what's important. He says, listen, you worship whoever you want to worship. You go to church you go to your temple, you have your Bible studies, but when push comes to shove on a principle, a moral, an ethic, when the music plays, you better follow me. You bow to Babylon. That golden idol was Nebuchadnezzar saying, my kingdom, this kingdom, is the ultimate authority in your life. I think our world wants that to happen with us now, the world system. Maybe there's not a particular leader. There probably are some particular leaders that want everybody just to worship the way they worship. But I know our world system does. And he builds this idol and he sends his herald out warning everybody, warning everybody, okay, when the music plays, worship that idol. You can do whatever you want on the other, but when the music plays, when I say jump, you say how high, right? You know, it's, it's interesting that this is just historically true, historically true. And even today, in our culture, people will not will not mind your vertical relationship with God. You can have a whatever vertical relationship you want with God, that's fine. Your vertical relationship is as good as anybody else's. But they really mind when you turn your vertical faith into a horizontal action. Wait a second. You're infringing on me. You're saying that maybe your vertical way is better than my vertical way. Are y'all following me? The problem as Christians is that is exactly what we're saying. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. And then he demonstrated it through resurrection. He didn't just say, I'm one of the gods. He said, I am God in the flesh. He said, who are, they looked at him and said, who are you? And he said, I am. I'm the God, there's only one, in the flesh, trust me for eternal life. 
people don't mind us believing that. Okay, you believe whatever you just don't tell anybody else. But here's the problem with that, is if I believe Jesus was God and he gave me a Bible, if I truly believe that, then to be faithful to that God, I have to put his vertical commandments into horizontal practice. So here's the, here's the microphone. Here's the first principle. Here's the first principle. Y'all hang with me because I'm way off script. Here's the first principle. If your faith in God is real, your conflict with the world is inevitable. If your faith in God is real, your conflict with the world is inevitable. If it's not real, as soon as you bump up horizontally to resistance, you cave, you compromise. But if your faith is real, it is going to cause friction. It is going to cause you to have to make a choice. You may make the wrong choice from time to time, but that choice is not going to leave you, and the Holy Spirit is going to convict you. 2 Timothy 3 says this, Indeed, all who desire, how many? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul knew this because Jesus said the same thing. And then he says this, to add to that, look at verse 13. While, so this is the persecution you face, this is a struggle. If you're going to live the Christian faith, you might be fortunate to live most of your life in a nation that's predominantly Christian and not face much persecution. That is the glory and grace of God for you. Bless you. But most of history, previous and I think in the future, we will not enjoy that. He says, all who live godly in a pluralistic society will be persecuted, while evil people, imposters, go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So how do we have this kind of faith under fire? Faith under fire. Well, I'm going to jump ahead, if you don't mind. I'm going to move forward in the story and get to a, to a moment that is really really exciting as the, the, the call went out and everybody bowed except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we don't know where they were at when the music played, but here's what we do know. And, and you can count on this, is that if you take the name of Christ, there will be some folks that watch you. Wherever you are, they're watching to see what you bow to. They're watching you. You say, that's just not fair. Well, it's not fair that Jesus died for you and gave you eternal life. But he's given us life. But if you claim the name of Christ, there are people who are curious to see if you really believe what you say. They're curious to see if the power of God that you claim really is in your life and if you're willing to get singed for your Savior. They're watching. Well, the Chaldeans, this group, who had led up their, uh, that group that got demoted. Remember them in chapter one? They got demoted as Daniel and his, his, his buddies were promoted. They were the ones that just uh, were made to look, look really, really bad when they couldn't interpret the dreams. Those Chaldeans had waited 20 years for this wonderful opportunity. You think they weren't watching when the music played? Oh man, we got them. 
So these Chaldean cowards took off to Nebuchadnezzar, ran up, and verse 8. Therefore, at that, that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. By the way, those Jews had saved their lives 20 years earlier. But they accused them. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every, knee who, every man who hears the sound of the horn. Am I, want me to use this? All right. Go Pentecostal here. I got the phone to, right here in my hand. That's what I always think about is I'm like, those guys really can preach holding the mic. But, uh, uh, O king, live forever. You, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, we get it, right? Shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews. We're not naming names, Nebuchadnezzar, but it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The world's watching. Verse 33. When the world can't control you, it becomes enraged. Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men to the king. Let me tell you what happens next. The king brings them in. And he says in verse 14, is it true? And he's, I really believe he's hoping it isn't. I think Nebuchadnezzar, it says in the next couple of verses, that his countenance changes. I think he liked these guys. He didn't want this to be true. He gave them a second chance. He basically said, all right, we're going to start over, do over, play the music, start the music, guys. What are you going to do? Listen to what they say. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, don't bother starting the music. We really don't need to have a discussion about this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What a statement. What a statement of faith. But I love that he, they balance this statement of faith with the reality that we see in the history of Christianity. We have seen people, and you might be one of them, who makes a stand for morality and ethics in your office. Like in front of your boss. You're like, boss, I'll do anything, but I cannot cheat. I'll do anything, but I cannot uh, treat a customer this way because that is not what Christ commands me. And you count on God and you pray and say, God, I'm trusting you. The preacher said, chapter 3, we saw the example. You, you saved them through the fire. Save my job. You stand up, you get fired. Has that ever happened? Bonhoeffer stood up against Hitler. This young, brilliant theologian was hung in prison just weeks before the end of the war. And I look at it and I'm going, how's that fair? How's that fair? Listen to what Shadrach, Meshach, listen to what the statement of faith these guys had. They said, God's going to deliver us, but if, what? Not. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It doesn't matter. Basically, they said something that's very true. God, here's, the, here's the principle, and I think that I have that above, principle number two. God is able, but he is not obligated to keep you from suffering. 
for your faith. He's able, and they confessed that, but he also confessed, we don't understand all the ways of God, and for his glory, my life is in his hands. If he wants me to hang, I hang. If he wants me to burn, I burn. But if he wants to deliver me for his glory, he'll deliver me for his glory. What a wonderful, wonderful, mature perspective of God that these men had. What do you think maybe, these guys are so spiritual. I don't know if I'd have been that spiritual. But at the end of this week of study and at the end of this message, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to think ahead. Um, there was some time between the order and the Chaldean critics, maybe a day, we don't know how much time went by, but they did have some time to think about what they were going to do. And they went in with their minds made up. We don't know if the king's going to change his mind, and we don't know if God's going to change his mind, but we're not going to change our mind. If the culture or the king commands us to disobey God's law, we would rather burn than bow. Are we willing to say that? Well, let me show you something that might give you courage to do that. What we see in the second half of this story is remarkable. We see the fourth man in the furnace. Look at this. Look at this. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated to its max, turned it all the way up to seven. He ordered that some of the mighty men, he got the strongest guys in his army. He didn't get the weak guys. He got guys that uh, in case there was any resistance could take care of it. He got the seals, right? And of his army, he bound up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the fiery furnace. He didn't like anything about them at this point. He wanted not only them to burn. He said, you just take their clothes and their hats, their whole wardrobe. I just throw it all in. I just love this. I don't know what this means, but I love 21. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments and were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. I think probably that would have acted as a really good kindling, <laughs> something to really make them burn quick. I don't know. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was so hot as they approached the furnace to dump the guys in the top of that furnace, the fire consumed them. And Nebuchadnezzar sat on his throne right outside the furnace looking into that, that lower door, and he says, I need a counselor. I mean, that's what he says, look. He says, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, guys, did not we throw three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, you speak truth, king. 
He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, not burning, but walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. I wanted them to hurt. I can't control them. They won't bow to, to, the, uh, to the political correctness. They won't bow to the things that we want them to do. They won't bow at work. They won't bow at school. They won't bow in those relationships to sin. They just keep loving people. They keep reaching out and helping people. They keep following the commands of their Savior. They keep doing those things, and it's causing me issues. I can't control this world with those Christians living a life like Jesus. I wanted them to stop. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus um, could have stopped the whole deal ahead of the furnace. And that's what we would prefer, isn't it? I mean, God, why couldn't you have just killed Nebuchadnezzar? Why couldn't you have just taken out the SEAL team that was carrying me in? What? Why couldn't, why the anxiety? Why put me, why did I have to even feel some heat? You could have done this a much easier way, God. I think it's because in this story, God wants us as New Testament believers to really focus in and celebrate the fourth man in the fire. Because I believe that fourth man in the fire was, was the son, was God the son, the son of God, a pre incarnate appearance of God uh, the Son. And uh, here's why I think that. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> once again, he just kind of operates on who wins the power battles. All right, you won this one. So everybody, be nice to the Jewish folks. Be nice to them. And if anybody gives the, the, the Jewish folks any problem, I'll just tear you from limb to limb. I love, he's so subtle. I'll tear you from limb to limb, and your houses will be in ruins. But look at the final statement there at the bottom of verse 29. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. In what way? By putting one of his own, a son of God, into the furnace to rescue his people. When we move to the New Testament, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating, literally blood-stained sweat you know what the pressure was he when he was in the garden of gethsemane about to be crucified he was literally looking into the furnace of god's wrath the furnace of the new testament is the cross the furnace that is really scary is not not one that nebuchadnezzar can generate the furnace that is really of concern to us is that the wages of sin is God's wrath, his death. And the remarkable thing is this, the way 
God rescues us, the way God saved us. He didn't just come down and just take care of all our problems and kill all our enemies to save us forever from our sin and ourself. God did something, and this is unlike any other faith, any other religion. This is how, this is the gospel. Our God didn't just create a furnace and threaten and say, you go in there and pay the penalty for all your stuff. God went into the furnace himself. Jesus went into the furnace himself. And in that furnace of the cross, that furnace of affliction, that furnace of God's wrath, listen to what Isaiah says happened. Isaiah said in chapter 53, Surely in that furnace, the cross, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He, in the furnace of God's wrath on the cross, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, his scars, the wrath of God upon him, you and I walk out of the furnace healed. We walk out of the furnace free. You know what I love about this story is that these guys walk out. Nebuchadnezzar sitting there. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. You got some explaining to do. They come out. The fourth man, whoever that was, I believe it was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, didn't come out. They come out, but what's remarkable is they come out unsinged and they don't even smell like smoke. You know what the Bible says about your pastor? It says some stuff about me. It says that apart from Christ, I am dead in my trespasses and sins, worthy of the greatest wrath of God for my sin, that my garments are stained and filthy with the stain of sin. But when I come to the cross by faith and I receive the gift of his eternal life, I walk into the furnace with Christ by his wounds, his stripes. He takes all of my sin and puts on me his cleanliness, his righteousness. I walk from the cross forgiven, clean with the righteousness of Christ. I will stand in heaven because Jesus came from heaven and stood in the furnace for me. That's what the Bible says about your pastor. Do you know that's what the Bible says about you? But you're going to have to come to Christ and come to him, not at Neb's furnace, but come to him at that place of exchange, that place where you come to the cross and you realize I deserve that fire, that fury, but I accept the gift of Christ's death. He wants to take the fury of God for me and be my friend and give me eternal life. Folks, that's, a, that's, that's the gospel, and we see it in Daniel chapter 3. He's so faithful. He overcame the furnace of God's wrath for you. And let me give you that second thing. 
This is what to do. Trust your God. Jesus overcame the furnace of God's wrath, and Jesus will stand in the furnaces of this life with you. Take that as a picture. You may have to stand for a conviction or a faith. We as a church may have to make some tough choices. 5, 10, 15 years, 20, we don't know what we'll have to face as churches and as Christians. But here's what this story and the Word of God tells us. Jesus is faithful to stand with us through every fire. Trust Him. Take your stand and trust your Savior. Let's pray together. With every head bowed, let me offer one challenge to you. If you've never trusted Christ with your eternal life, if you've never asked him for the forgiveness of your sin, you face the furnace alone. But today he makes his offer just clearly to you. If you would like him to be your savior, to forgive you of your sin and to come into your life to walk through every trial and temptation. He walks through all of it with you. If you want that, He offers His life to you. If you'd like to trust Christ this morning, you can just turn to Him in a word of prayer. Everybody's heads are bowed and our hearts are just so thankful for Jesus right now. But if you want to, in your heart, you can trust Him. Ask Him right now to forgive you. Ask Him to enter into your life to be your Lord and your Savior. He will never leave you or forsake you. But He also, listen, He will call you to follow Him. And following Jesus will sometimes lead to the furnace of affliction. But trust Him. Trust Him if it's a relationship that you know is not right. And you're going to have to go and do something about that. Trust Him. If you're being called to do something that you know is not moral or ethical at work or at school or at home. And you're facing a choice to disobey God or disobey a friend or a leader. Some of those things, it's a tough choice to in our flesh. But would you just know that you cannot lose in an eternal sense when you follow Christ. Maybe you're facing temptation, the furnace of temptation, and you keep getting burned by habits. You keep getting burned by anger, resentment. There are just things in your life that represent temptations. He stands with you in those 1 Corinthians tells us that with every temptation, he provides a way of escape. That way of escape is turning to the fourth man, turning to Jesus. Would you trust him? Turn towards him and just ask him, God, help me. Help deliver me from the fire of the trials and the temptations. Help me to, to walk through it, and he will. We're going to sing in just a moment, and when we do you've made a decision this morning, I'd love to celebrate that with you. Would you come? Let me shake your hand. Just 
pray with you. If you want to be baptized like those two young ladies today or join our fellowship as we're standing and singing, we have counselors. You come, they'll take you and just make sure you get uh, done what you need to get done and we'll celebrate with you today. But most of all, church, when we stand after I pray, when we stand just symbolically in your heart to say, God, I'm going to stand up for you. And I'll just be honest and I'll do it in a loving way. Because when we stand in an unloving way, uh, we pull the carpet right out from under our own testimony. So may we stand with humility and love the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Father, we thank you for your invitation to our hearts. Help us to live uh, in such a way that you can use us for your glory. In Christ's name.